0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: Next on the podcast The Creepy Touch of Alien Contact. Having sex with bloody dead bodies. Or at least writing about it. Dogs and dragons, spaceships and horse drawn Dodge Chargers. And part six of our continuing serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. What an honor it is to have you along. Coming up is our interview with Bain author Charles E. Gannon. Chuck has a new SF novel just out called Fire with Fire, and we'll talk with him about that. Then, David Drake will provide our writing suggestion for the podcast, and this one is a doozy and a half. All I can say is, you're going to love it. If you like really gross and disgusting stuff, that is. And finally, we have part six of our continuing serialization of the audiobook of David Weber's monumental science fiction novel, Shadow of Freedom. First, though, the news. Here's a bit of publishing trivia. Not everybody notices how the publishing cycle goes, nor should they necessarily care. But if you are an observant sort, you'll see that we put out a batch of books at the start of every month of the year. These will include some absolutely new titles you haven't seen before, usually in hardcover or that hardcover-sized trade paperback format. The smaller-sized paperbacks are called mass-market paperbacks. Now, Bain occasionally puts out a mass-market original, that is, a never-before-seen title in mass-market, but usually mass-markets are the economy-sized editions of a book for the general reader. So April mass markets have been released for a whole month and are doing quite well out there in the wild, by all reports. These are some great science fiction and fantasy titles, and they include Galactic Courier, which is part of Bane's reissue of the collected John Grimes space opera novels of the great A. Bertram Chandler. Also just out is uh, 1636 The Kremlin Games by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. This particular entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series came off really well and is one of my favorites. And finally out now is a wonderful high fantasy with great world building and winning characters. This is Dog and Dragon by Dave Freer. We're going to talk to Dave on the podcast next week. That is, if the wallabies don't eat him first. Dave lives in the wilds of Tasmania and Dave is himself a bit of a wild man. That will be fun, so join us then. Find out more on all of these at Bain.com, where you can also check out the free fiction and nonfiction we have new each month. And finally, we really want to encourage you to participate in the pod with your notes and comments. We have a special spot for you to do this. On the podcast page at the Bain.com website, there is a link. This link takes you directly to the podcast forum at Bain's Bar. Now, Bain's Bar is our long-standing discussion area for Bain books. This is a wonderful community of readers, and lots of the writers hang out there as well. So click on that link, register if you have not already. We don't share your email with anyone or use it for anything else. And make yourself heard on the Bain Free Radio Hour Forum. Hello, I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. With me today is Bain Associate Editor, Laura Haywood-Corey. Hi, Laura. Hello. And Bain Editor Emeritus, Hank Davis. Howdy, Hank.
2: Hello, people.
1: Now, we want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast today. Hi, Chuck. Hello. Charles E. Gannon, who is Chuck to us, is the author of new science fiction novel, Fire with Fire. In Fire with Fire, a defense analyst, a guy who's sort of a polymath in his abilities, Travels to a newly settled world, uh, being developed by a monopoly corporation that seems to be up to no good. Uh, Had a look at the science fiction bestsellers this morning, and Fire with Fire is comfortably on the list. So we can now officially call Fire with Fire a national bestseller. So congrats on that, Chuck.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, It's a great place to sit, and I wouldn't sit there if it wasn't for you folks at Bain.
1: And Chuck is also the co-author of several other Bane books. These include Starfire Series Entry Extremis, written with Steve White, and the best-selling Ring of Fire Series alternate history novel, 1635 The Papal Stakes, co-authored with Eric Flint. That is out now in hardcover and will be in mass market in the fall of this year, and we will definitely want to ask Chuck and Eric Flint about that experience of co-writing that novel in a later podcast. Chuck Gannon also happens to be a multiple Fulbright scholar, and since a portion of Fire with Fire takes place in Greece, we'll ask him if one of those Fulbrights was for study in that area of the world. Don't answer yet. We'll get to it. And Distinguished Professor of American Literature at St. Bonaventure University. The Greek section of the book, Chuck, was one of your Fulbrights to that area? Sorry
2: to disappoint. Not at all. (laughs) No. but uh, but they were in Europe and if you'll notice there's a there's a lot of european perspective in the book and uh, it was it was invaluable to go and spend a lot of time in a various in a various number of european countries both both north central and eastern europe and uh, and sort of um, i guess you could say walk in those shoes for a while and see the world through those eyes
1: what what is fulbright anyway
2: a Fulbright was established after World War II by the Fulbright-Hays Act, and essentially it was um, – uh, <laughs> although it has a lot of idealistic components to it, very genuine – it was also a, a sort of Cold War uh, device in the, the notion of putting American scholars out into the world as sort of unofficial ambassadors and, and uh, in, in reverse – Bringing scholars from other countries over to the United States, and you you might call it essentially a sustained cultural offensive, Um, and it was um, it was a a pretty effective one. Um, It's it's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of apocryphal tales that uh, that that surrounded about the fact that Fulbright scholars were spies or covert operatives or this that or the other thing. Um, I, I I think very little of that is true. I will say that, um, but you couldn't the, tell the us. P-
1: if it were, you couldn't tell us if it were true, could you, Chuck?
2: Well, I, 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 I'm not disposed to currently respond to that question well, at see. this time. And if I was, oh, so I was, would be yeah, right So, to so I'll, I'll rehearse that at a later time uh, in <laughs> front of the uh, congressional subcommittee. Um, but, <laughs> but the it is true that you go to embassy parties and sometimes you're approached in ways that that your, your nation's own official representatives are not, simply because they know they might not be getting a party line from you. And they always suspect that they're going to be getting a party line from consulate or embassy personnel.
1: Right, because you're, you're a free agent of sorts, I suppose. Uh,
2: free agent. An yep.
1: ambassador of scholarship, as it were. So, uh, all right, Fire yep. with Fire. This is a fun book, a bunch of cool science fiction ideas in play here. One of them is Alien First Contact, the problem is, is that we don't want to reveal too much of the plot of the book, since a couple of revelations are kind of key to that plot, and I don't want to spoil anything. So so let's talk about to your approach to that question in general. Uh, I think it's safe to say that at least in Fire and Fire, you aren't part of the aliens are far above us as they are above God's sort of crowd. Um, what is your take on this, at least uh, within the book?
2: Well, I'm going to I'm going to work inside the book because <laughs> because that's a broad not question. Not a yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not I I haven't the the temerity to to think about that in in real terms. But when I sat down and I wrote this, and there was a lot of futurism that went into the projection of the world and economy and population and and things such as that. Um and it follows its own laws, I'd like to think, pretty tightly. Um one of the things I did I did try to ask myself is how would we really handle uh alien first contact what would what would that look like sort of on the on the official line on the official end of things and of course what sort of aliens are we likely to contact well that's a, that's a pretty wide question obviously but the the one I wanted to deal with um, it, it, I'll go with this from a from a sort of blue sky uh take which is that I think that you know are they are they going to be like gods above us or or much more comparable to us? my My answer would be, I suspect there's a sliding scale. Um, but I tend to suspect also that those that are most close to us are the ones that probably will have the most reason and the most interest in contacting
1: us. Um, that makes sense. And, and
2: there's a there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, my basic, my my basic sort of frame for this is that it, a million years are nothing in terms of the, the evolutionary history of the of the universe as we handle as we inhabit it right now, um, and a million years are enough time for gods to rise and vanish. Um, but uh, but there are reasons, and, and I think once once a, a race has gotten to the point where Clark's axiom of of sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, I also begin to wonder, you know, why it is that they'd be in contact with us anyhow, and would we even know it if they were. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think there potentially are a lot of reasons for folks that uh, alien folks um, who are about at our level might be very interested in um, in sort of checking in on us, and particularly when, and this is the trigger factor in in fire with fire when we expand into the stars. You know, when you're, when, when you can't do anything except for to your own backyard, the neighbors might or might not be concerned with you. Well, when you start being able to mess around in their backyard, then it becomes necessary to sort of, uh, probably, you know, acclimate people to the notion that there is a, a community watch, uh, <laughs> and a community standards committee and all that business. Um, so, so that's part of the, the motivators here. And, and some of the things that I get to have fun with playing here is I, I explain the Fermi Paradox um, as a kind of, I guess you'd say, uh, a radio version of Star Trek's Prime Directive. Maybe we should. Um, Let's in, characterize
1: the Fermi Paradox just so people that don't know what it oh, is. Okay.
2: Right. The, the Fermi Paradox is, is really briefly, uh, Enrico Fermi says, so if the universe is filled with intelligences, why aren't we hearing them? Um, they would have radios, and even if they don 't use radios anymore, they would have used them for a long time. Well, there are problems with the Fermi paradox to begin with anyhow, in that uh, it it seems increasingly as we look at the science of it, you might not actually get a, a solid pattern you you might not get a recognizable signal based on a variety of distortive effects, range effects, things like that but But for sake of argument let 's assume that that's a uh, that you could, and therefore there 's this question standing before us, which is if, if the universe is inhabited, why haven't we you know, why haven't we heard somebody's calling cards or laundry list or something like that being broadcast in our direction? One of the one of the things that, that I come up with here is that there's a kind of radio version of what the Star Trek Prime Directive. And what I mean by that is imagine how our culture would have changed if the first time we turned on a crystal set, you know, we, we heard these patterns which then within fifteen years we identified were coming from that part of the sky. And actually, were, were decipherable messages. If you think about what the how the world's history might have might have progressed from having pretty clear knowledge of uh, of having interstellar neighbors, in, let's say 1925, um, I think they'd have been the Roaring Twenties for other reasons. Um, th- this would this would be a huge huge uh, cultural impact, possibly dislocation, possibly fear. So That sounds uh, so like a really species.
1: great idea for an alternate history. Actually, <laughs> maybe you should well, write that one. Well, in
2: <laughs> actually, actually, see now, you, now I, I I can't talk about that because it would be a spoiler. But there's a very big arc at work here, and um, not all species, let's say, had the advantage of, if you will, missing the keyhole. And what I mean by that is, um. If you think about the time, and we don't know what this is going to be, but here it's about, you know, we get interstellar drive briefly, shortly after the the dawn of the the 22nd century. So you're talking about 200 years, give or take, from radio to interstellar flight. Let's even, let's multiply that by five. Let's say it's a thousand years. Still, that's a very short period of time when you think about it. In other words, if, if. Species X, uh, develops radio in year one and gets out into the cosmos in year one thousand and immediately somebody says, okay, well, let, let me, let me introduce you to the neighbors and here's rule one. You don't freak out the neighbors who haven't joined us yet by broadcasting, we're here, we're here, we're here. We let you do it because we couldn't interfere with you, but you've really got to cut that out now. And, um, and, I'm I'm obviously shorthanding this very heavily, but if you're not if you're a species that is not listening to the right corner of the sky, so to speak, at the right time, a very narrow band of time, really, as 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 anyone measures time, um, you won't hear anything, because you'll go from from a species will go in probably a fairly brief period of time from industrialization to interstellar capability. uh, In if if you can get to the stars, it's probably it, it. at least at least the the model I'm working with here is it's not a 10,000 year uh trip to do that uh, when i say trip i mean a journey across the 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 um the slopes of human development that take you there so um if you're not listening in that narrow period of time you know corrected by distance and speed of light um you're not going to hear anything so that's some of the fun that i have yeah uh, so here. the so the just even
1: the species that got ftl would also Get a knock on the door saying, you better be quiet now.
2: Yeah, you, you, there, there's a with, – again, without going too far into the story because then there are some some cool things that happen that people will know are coming. Um, there's a th- – let's put it like this. First contact involves many different things, and it involves choices um, as well or maybe instead of compulsion. Uh it's a very recognizable take on the first on the first contact story. But it I I'd like to think it has some interesting nuances because very often, you know, you get sort of what I would say is the the portrayal of the extremes on the one hand we have the aliens who show up and say it's got to be this way and on the others it's sort of like i'm okay you're okay and the weird ones in the corner are pretty cool too um and,
1: no, well i thought and, it was a very original take on 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 all thoughts well, about I'm, first contact so, instead of uh risking further spoilers <laughs> let's now <laughs> kane reardon who's our hero in fire with fire you, he gets right. called a couple of times a polymath now I was thinking about your background, Fulbright, scholar, defense consultant, I believe you are sometimes in uh, in the D.C. area. Defense and, and intelligence, yeah. And writer. Uh, so how much of a cane did you pull from your experience? So what the heck is a polymath, anyway?
2: Okay, well, a polymath, off the top, is essentially uh, to be adept at many things. Um, without It pushes it a little into a different category to, say, renaissance man, but it's it's a little bit. It's a little bit like that. It, the Renaissance man usually suggests sort of cultural achievements in the sense of you know you know exactly what fork to 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 use when the second course of dessert comes, um, and that's not what a polymath is. A polymath is uh, is strictly on the ability level of things. Um, how much did I pull from my own experience? Uh, well, let's put it like this: I certainly wanted to dodge any Mary Sueism. On the other hand, it helps to have a close feel for your character. And for your life, I've had pieces in it that you're very familiar with and can write with authority because they're not too distant different from pieces in your own life um, but I don't think that sort of parallel is essential and that actually was probably not the primary driver uh, here uh, Well I like the way ways, that you I
1: have problem. him uh, I like the way that you have him several times be the guy his particular talent is being able to pick out things other people just don't notice right
2: Yes. That that tendency to see details is related to the way one of the ways polymaths approach the universe, which is, um, well, if if I can pull in a couple of topics here, my work with Sigma, science fiction fans, and where's the box? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull these three things together. I'm a member of Sigma, which is our, our creator, Arlen Andrews, calls science fiction in the in the national interest. That's where a lot of my consultancy has has come through, and we basically do at least one pro bono if, if folks in various agencies, Pentagon, um, NASA, DHS, others that that I I I'm, I'm asked not to talk about, not because I did anything super cool, but because they say it's better for you not to talk about it. Um, you know, one of, one of the reasons we're there is because they are, as one of them said, we, you know, we brought you in because you guys, you're able to think outside the box, right? And one of our number looked around and smiled and said, box? What box? Um, and and that's, a, that's a, an important component of a polymath kind of view of the world. One of the things about a polymath is not merely their ability in many areas, but they tend not to see things through the filters of convention. In other words, there's a, there's a phrase in there where, you know, somebody says, well, you see, you see a screwdriver and he sees a screwdriver and a weapon and a straight edge and a, and a, you know, a pendulum bob and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the polymath tends to see a variety of potentialities inherent to an object or a situation without, and they can see them because they, they can see it outside of the, the coding that it that it has. Because, you know, we see a screwdriver and we think, oh, construction. Well, the polymath doesn't necessarily think that right away. They're aware of that. But they say, yeah, but it's a whole lot of other things, too. And when I say science fiction fans, and I'm relating it to Sigma here, and science fiction authors as well, is one of the things that I found, when I sat down and I decided who was Kane Riordan going to be, how was I going to write him, I wanted to give him if you know if everybody's got a superpower right <laughs> every hero has a superpower i wanted his to be this this sort of intelligence this sort of resourcefulness this sort of polymathic ability because i see this again and again in in you know all all the folks who are listening all those readers you guys Fellow authors, fellow Sigma members, Um, one of the things that I think makes us a community, identifies us, is that we do tend to think outside the box. Not because we, you know, as we refined it, then later to jump back to the Sigma story, somebody spoke up, I won't say who, and said, well, it's not that we don't know that there's a box there. We just can choose not to live in it. And that's one of the things that I wanted to give him, and I wanted to give that to Kane because I wanted readers to be able to say, you know, I could be that guy. Because I think a lot of science fiction readers and fans indeed are that guy. That's what makes them very often different from the people they're around.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. He's a very winning uh, character, very identifiable, and and a guy that uh, you want to be like even if if you're not. And a lot of, like you say, a great many science fiction uh, readers are that guy as well. Let me, uh, I want to say a little bit about your driving writing style. I think it's really good stuff. Uh, you got a great voice, a real Heinlein kind of energy to your, to your words. Um, I noticed this a while back in, in a short, short story that was by you in the Going Interstellar anthology. Bane had out last year. Uh, the story is called Lesser Beings, I believe. Uh, and, uh, it's about, uh, well I don't want to say what it's about the story is available by itself online by the way at uh as part of the samples chapters in Going Interstellar definitely check that out do you want to talk about the genesis of that story a little bit by the way Chuck is that-
2: uh, sure the um Thanks again to the folks at Bain who apparently said to Jack McDevitt, talk to this guy Chuck Gannon. And Jack McDevitt, who I knew already, uh, got in touch with me and said, do you want to write a story for Going Interstellar? And the basic premise of Interstellar was, excuse me, let me take that again. The basic premise of interstellar, uh, Going Interstellar was that um, the notion was there could not be any FTL. It had to be slower than light technology. Uh, and it had to be a technology that we had some Vision of right now that we could at least reasonably theoretically project. So pretty much you went from antimatter down to fusion to solar cells to nuclear to et cetera et cetera yeah. et cetera. the, and all the, the all it, it's the paired.
1: It's stories that are paired with science essays as well. And, that and are,
2: that's right. That's yeah. Yeah, right. That's exactly where I was going. Not everything in the book was was fiction. A lot of it was nonfiction. Very very hard SF. Hard hard science speculation about about these drives um and so so i i took on fusion, and um one of the things that I wanted to do with it was I wanted to look at one of the ways in which humanity might actually use this uh, to evolve a solution to to um if you might might call it wars that got to the point where uh it was going to be either mutual extermination or one group could leave now that's a, that sounds like a you know a fleet of arcs that's not the way it works out and you'd have to see the way the society is portrayed. Um, the, the, the part of the society quote that matters is a very small tip of, of the class structure iceberg, which is, which is part of the, the, um, I guess you could say what makes the, the characters in the society, I would say, um, uh, very questionable in terms of emulation. Um, now the thing that I have to, so essentially you've got people who lose wars and they go from, you know, they're, they're kicked out. Um, and. The one thing I'll have to say, and one of the reasons I don't want to say anything more about it, is strangely enough, when you wrote this uh, this question, Tony, I'll bet you didn't know this is a spoiler alert because this story is actually part of the Fire with Fire universe. I know Uh there's no FTL there. There's no mention of Earth, at least not that you can see, and it does take place in a different, you know, different place, different time. But I promise you that it will all tie together, and that kind of gets into a little bit. of what I'm doing with this entire arc, which is, I'm gonna throw out an image. You may have seen the things from, from Rome, which are, they're mosaics, and what they're, but what they are is they're tiles. And each tile actually is a small picture. It's part of a scene. If you get the tile itself, you say, oh, that's a pretty little gazelle in a field. But then what happens is you stand back, and you look at all the tiles, and you realize that you have this immense, if you will, mosaic mural in front of you, that that tells a much greater story than is told or represented on any given one of the tiles. This is a tile; it will fit in later on, and that's all I'm going to say.
1: Well, that is very that is Heinlein esque in a way as well. The, uh, the <laughs> oh, the big... you
2: say Heinlein? I have to tell you, yeah. you say Heinlein every time I, I hear that from anyone. I get this. I, I get a singular rush hearing that because you're you're talking about probably the person who who set me off on this course. Um, to begin with, in a whole lot of ways and um, and you know he was a huge influence and and gaming was too and and one of the things I want to mention and uh is that uh within hopefully within the not too distant future uh, i'm going to be uh, uh writing an introduction for a guy by the name of Mark miller uh who anybody who listens to gaming knows about he 's doing something called Traveller Eight now. Which is actually the the notion behind it is is to encourage the pay it forward attitude in even younger gamers, uh, even under the age of ten. And that's certainly what happened to me. So you you know, when when I hear somebody say Heinlein, and I think, my gosh, you know, I've I've the the person I admired, I'm being compared to at all. That's a huge huge rush.
1: Well, it's well deserved. Uh, Also, I think I just figured out where Lesser Beings fits in with Fire with Fire. Does it have something to do with those stone structures on Delta Pavonis 3? Just asking. Yes and no. Oh, yes and no. no. Great. Thank you, Chuck, for that (laughs) answer.
2: They have something to do with why they're ruined.
1: (laughs) All right. No more, no more, no more. All right. Now, Fire with Fire. Fire with fire ends with humanity in a rather precarious political balance, both within and without. At the end of the book, don't want to say too much about the finale here, but Chuck, you leave us wanting a sequel to find out what happens. Are we going to get one? I think you've answered well, that.
2: I, I guess from our, from the conversation we've just been having, it's, it's it's pretty clear that I sure want you to get one. Um, the the sequel, I should say, the next in the series, is already in first draft. Um, and that's. I kind of cheated because I've been working on this mapping both the arc of the of the entire story as well as writing the individual uh novels for a long long time. Um it the second one is probably going to be a little bit different in its structure. What I mean by that is some folks have said that um the first one Fire with Fire is reminds them sort of of uh, born identity meets winds of war. Uh it's you know it's a lot of it's a lot of intrigue. The, there's no war on the table per se just yet. Um, the second one, which is titled "Trial by Fire," I would say that that one is more like "The Longest Day" meets "Tora Tora Tora," um, and uh, and all the questions in "Fired with Fire" are answered in that book. But there's a catch, and the catch is this: that getting each of those answers is pretty much like cutting the head off of a hydra. Getting the answer spawns at least two more questions.
1: So, well,
2: <laughs> and they'll all be handled in the mosaic. Once the mosaic is complete. All the answers are there.
1: Well, very good. Uh, so we'll be seeing lots more from Chuck Gannon. I believe you have a story also in this summer's Honor Harrington anthology beginnings.
2: Yes, yes, I do. Um, and that one is called By the Book. Uh, it's kind of a departure for the series in that it deals with a segment of time very, very early in, uh, in humanity's experience with spaceflight. Again, slower than light. This seems to be a, uh, um, an area. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm called in to work on a bunch of times um long before any of the political uh organizations and and uh, and issues and battles and wars uh that that most of the uh, most of the series the Honor Harrington series has dealt with are are even foreseeable much less uh, taking place and that was a lot of fun for me because it all takes place in 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 the in this solar system and uh gives us a chance to connect if you will the our current day this very century with the future of the honor harrington universe in a very immediate and tangible way and i think that bane readers are going to find some of the um i will call it the political and cultural considerations in the book um uh, very provocative and interesting
1: oh very cool very cool look forward to that So, Charles E. Gannon's Fire with Fire is at booksellers everywhere now. It's fast-paced, idea-driven science fiction. Check it out. And thanks for being with us, Chuck.
2: As always, it's a huge pleasure. I look forward to talking to you all again soon.
1: We like to ask Bain writers for a weekly writing suggestion for our listeners. Now, this can be whatever you want and it's usually a seed crystal for a developing writer to take and shape into a piece of work. The result could be a paragraph or two, a short story, or heck, even a novel. The caveat is it should be something doable in a week. Listeners can post their work and discuss this on the podcast forum at Bain's Bar. You can get there directly from the podcast page at Bain.com. This time we have something special from David Drake. While Dave sat down with us not long ago for an interview, between takes he began to tell a most fascinating story that turned into a great lesson in how to handle editors. Some editors. We decided to turn it into the writing suggestion for this podcast. David Drake is probably best known for his Military Science Fiction, which includes his Hammer Slammer series of science fiction novels and his Republic of Cinnabar Navy series, the latest RCN series entry is The Road of Danger, just out in mass market paperback from Bane. Now that you're in the know about pub dates and mass markets and such, that was a February book. Other Drake series include his co-written General series, which continues with The Heretic out in hardcover this month, April, so it's brand spanking new. This one was co-authored with Dave by yours truly, Tony Daniel. Here is Dave's story, followed by a writing suggestion.
3: Screwing Bloody Dead Bodies, yes. the title of my uh, yeah. novella for Betsy Mitchell. That's actually, that's a really funny story. That's, didn't you, uh, I,
1: you were trying to screw with her. and Oh, I and did. They... I did.
3: <laughs> uh, she, uh, I... Might even do for a story. No, she uh, was doing a three-author, uh, a collection of three-author anthologies, and uh, she was making a point of being, uh, you know, very professional. <laughs> when Jim and I did a project, it was usually we talked about it over the phone, and then I would send it in and tell him to send me money, and he would send me money, and maybe at some point somebody would uh, remember to do up paper. And this was kind of That's a nightmare. That's
1: kind of the way Bain still does. Things. Yeah, well, hey, it works
3: really well, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you trust well, each so everybody other. Everybody yeah. You know. Um, but it's also kind of a nightmare for somebody coming in uh, later. And Betsy Mitchell had been... Uh, managing editor for Analog. And uh, so she, she was going to do it right. So she sent formal contracts ahead of time for the project. And there was a blank for the, the title of the work. And I said, I don't know what the title is. And she said, well, just put anything in. And I said well, Screwing Bloody Dead Bodies, which is the title of a real book of necrophiliac porn, uh, a very rare one. Um, and she said, well, just fill something. So that's what I filled in. Uh, well, then in the course of writing it, remember... Uh, I have said many times that when I'm in the middle of a project, it's crap. It's just utter crap. Uh, and I keep going, and I finish it, and then I go over it repeatedly. And, you know, it isn't actually crap, but it's always that in my mind. doesn't matter. That's true of short stories. It's true of novels. It was true of this novella. So in the middle of it, I said to Betsy, oh, I don't know how this is working. I'm afraid it's crap. And she said, ooh, I get to edit you. Um, Which is not actually what I want an editor to do. Uh, I could put that more strongly and have to editors on occasion. Um, but I just sort of drew up tightly inside. And... Uh, I finished the novella, at Liberty Port, by the way, and then I thought, she's going to want to edit this, and I don't like to be edited. I really deeply don't. So <laughs> I did a fake page and a half and laid it on top of the real manuscript. And the the page and a half was titled Screwing Bloody Dead Bodies. And then I wrote a page and a half of um, a scene involving two mercenaries on the the site of a shot-up convoy. And there were bodies bloating all around. There were some communications workers in it. And the the men were chatting as one of them had sexual congress with one of the dead telephone operators and the other was catching the flies rising off the bodies and catching them in the air by hand and then eating them saying that they tasted like shrimp. He was lying. So I, I sent this off on top of the manuscript and this bane was in uh new york at the time not riverdale this is this is back on 260 5th uh, avenue so the mail person ripped the envelopes open this was you know still submitting by hard copy and um, so the the mail person ripped open the envelope and pulled out the manuscript and said, Ooh, screwing bloody dead bodies. And Betsy, next desk over, says, Oh, he didn't really use that title, did he? <laughs> and picked up the manuscript and started reading. <laughs> and... Uh,
1: How long did it take her before, or did she uh, it, it
3: It was, she said when she was able to think again her first thought was he's jim's closest friend and i'm going to have to publish this <laughs> in an anthology with my name on it uh but then she got you know the the third page was the the real first page and and we all had a really good laugh over it and by the way she didn't um, she didn't try to edit my story
1: <laughs> i guess she was recovering from her shock
3: it uh, that that's one of those things that you know you can't be sure it's going to work but boy if it does work it sure was worth doing
1: so here's the writing suggestion we came up with based on dave drake's story Write 500 or so words of the most off-putting, horrific, shocking piece you can possibly imagine. Then segue into 500 words of a regular story or novel you are working on. This may get the juices flowing and give you some new ideas. And if you are part of a writing group, we encourage you to submit what you've written as new work without telling anybody that it's a joke. Get their reactions and please share them with us at the podcast forum at Baines Bar. You can get there from the podcast page at Bain.com. And now we continue with our most excellent audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I've been an Audible subscriber for years. It's a great service. Okay, here's what has gone before. We open on Halkirk, a planet in the Loomis system, under the thumb of the autocratic Solarian League. The planet's bloodthirsty, tyrannical rulers are in league with Solarian League interest to bleed the system dry of natural resources, while keeping the inhabitants under the boot hill of a local dictatorship. A rebel resistance movement has risen on Loomis. The provos, as they are called, are great in spirit, but lacking in weapons and resources. An arms supplier has promised that more help was coming, and hinted that he has ties to that great rival to the Salarian League, Honor Harrington's, Manticoran Star Kingdom. A man who may be the same weapons dealer shows up in the Seraphim system, another oppressed system, he issues the same promise to a brother-and-sister team of planetary insurgents. But we find he is no Star Kingdom operative. Instead, he works for a shady group known as the Mason Alliance. Meanwhile, at Sector Command in the Spindle system, a difficult road lies ahead for RMN Fleet Admiral Michelle Hinkey, Admiral Gold Peak, who also happens to be Honor Harrington's best friend, for Admiral Gold Peak is only now beginning to discover that someone is making promises on the RMN's behalf in order to sow discord on a galactic level. Here is Part 6 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: April 1922, Post-Diaspora It's an imperfect universe. Deal with it. Admiral Michelle Henke Chapter 5 Chris Billingsley poured the final cup of coffee, set the carafe on the small side table, and withdrew without a word. Vice Admiral Gloria Michelle Samantha Evelyn Henke, Countess Goldpeak and Commanding Officer 10th Fleet, Royal Manticoran Navy, watched him go, then picked up her cup and sipped. Other people were doing the same thing around the conference table, and she wondered how many of them were using it as a stage prop in their effort to project a sense that the universe hadn't gone mad around them. If they are, they aren't doing a very good job of it, she thought grimly. On the other hand, neither am I, because as near as I can tell, the universe has gone crazy. The first intimation of what looked like it was going to come to be called the Yawata Strike, because of the total destruction of the city of Yawata Crossing, had reached Spindle 26 hours ago. At that time, all they'd had was the flash message telling them the Manticore binary system itself had been attacked and that damage to the Star Empire's industrial capacity had been severe. Now the first follow-up report, with a more detailed estimate of the damage and the casualties, had arrived, and she found herself wishing the message transit time between Spindle and Manticore was longer than eight days. She supposed she should be glad to be kept informed but she could have gone for years, decades, without this particular bit of information. All right, she said finally, lowering her cup and glancing at Captain Lecter. I suppose we may as well get down to it. She smiled without any humor at all. I don't imagine any of you are going to be any happier to hear this than I am. Unfortunately, after we do, we've got to decide what we're going to do about it, and I'm going to want recommendations for Admiral Kumalo and Baroness Medusa. So if any of you, and I mean any of you, happen to be struck by any brilliant insights in the course of Cindy's briefing, make a note of them. We're going to need all of them we can get. Heads nodded, and she gestured to Lecter. The floor is yours, Cindy, she said. Yes, ma'am. Lecter didn't look any happier about the briefing she was about to give than her audience looked about what they knew they were going to hear. She spent a second or two studying the notes she'd made before she looked up and let her blue eyes circle the conference table. We have confirmation of the original reports, she said, and it's as bad as we thought it would be. In fact, it's worse. She drew a deep breath then activated the hollow display above the conference table, bringing up the first graphic. Direct, immediate civilian loss of life, she began, was much worse than any pre-attack worst-case analysis of damage to the space stations had ever suggested, because there was absolutely no warning. As you can see from the graphic, the initial strike on Hephaestus... I never realized just how much worse a victory could make a defeat taste. Augustus Kumalo said much later that evening. He, Michel, Michael Overstegen, and Sir Ivar Sterikov sat with Baroness Medusa on the ocean-side balcony of her official residence. The tide was in, and surf made a soothing, rhythmic sound in the darkness. But no one felt very soothed at the moment. I know, Michel agreed. It kind of makes everything we've accomplished out here look a lot less important, doesn't it? No, milady, it most definitely does not, Medusa said so sharply that Michelle twitched in her chair and looked at the smaller woman in surprise. Sorry, Medusa said after a moment. I didn't mean to sound as if I was snapping at you, but you and Augustus and Ivars, and Michael have accomplished an enormous amount out here. Don't ever denigrate your accomplishments or yourselves just because of bad news from somewhere else. You're right, of course, Michelle acknowledged after a moment. It's just... just that it feels like the end of the world, Medusa finished for her, when she seemed unable to find the exact word she'd been looking for. Maybe not quite that bad, but close, Michelle agreed. Well, it damned well should, Medusa told her tartly. Undervaluing your own accomplishments doesn't necessarily make you wrong about how deep a crack we're all in right now. Michelle nodded. The Admiralty dispatches had pulled no punches. With the devastation of the home system's industrial capacity, the Royal Manticoran Navy found itself, for the first time since the opening phases of the First Havenite War, facing an acute ammunition shortage and that shortage was going to get worse, a lot worse, before it got any better. Which was the reason all of Michelle's remaining shipboard Apollo pods were to be returned to Manticore as soon as possible. Given the concentration of Mark 16 armed units under her command, the Admiralty would try to make up for the differential by supplying her with all of those they could find, and both her warships and her local ammunition ships currently had full magazines. Even so, however... She was going to have to be extraordinarily circumspect in how she expended the rounds available to her, because there probably weren't going to be any more for quite a while. At least I don't expect anyone to be eager to poke his nose back into this particular hornet's nest anytime soon, she said out loud. Unless, of course, whoever hid the home system wants to send his phantom raiders our way, Kumalo pointed out sourly. Unlikely, if you'll forgive me for saying so, sir, Overstegan observed. Kumalo looked at him and Overstegan shrugged. The Admiralty's estimate that whoever did this was operating on what they used to call a shoestring seems to me to be well taken. And frankly, if they were to decide to carry out additional attacks of this sort... Anything here in the quadrant would have to be far less valuable to them than a follow-up knockout attack on the home system. I think Michael's probably right, Augustus, Michelle said. I don't propose that we take anything for granted, and I've got Cindy and Dominica busy working out the best way to generate massive redundancy in our sensor coverage, just in case, but I don't see us as the logical candidate for the next sneak attack. "'if they do go after anything in the quadrant? "'I'd imagine it would be the terminus itself, "'since I can't see anything else out this way "'that would have equal strategic value "'for anyone who obviously doesn't like us very much, "'and that, fortunately or unfortunately, "'we're just going to have to leave in other people's hands.' "'Her uniformed fellows nodded, "'and Baroness Medusa tilted back her chair. "'Should I assume that, for the moment at least,' You feel relatively secure here in the quadrant, then? I think we probably are, Kumalo answered instead of Michelle. He was, after all, the station commander. There's a great deal to be said for Admiral Overstegen's analysis where these mysterious newcomers are concerned. And frankly, at the moment, the League doesn't have anything to send our way, even if it had the nerve to do it. That could change in a few months, but for now, at least... They can't pose any kind of credible threat, even against ships armed only with Mark 16s. Good, Medusa's nostrils flared. I only hope that sanity is going to leak out somewhere in the League before anyone manages to get additional forces out our way or directed at the home system. Any change in the escort's formation guns? Commander Naomi Kaplan asked. No, ma'am. Lieutenant Abigail Hearns replied. They're maintaining interval and heading. The slender brunette lieutenant didn't add that the escorts in question had to have picked up the impeller signatures of the two destroyers overtaking them from astern. Naomi Kaplan had been HMS Hexapuma's tactical officer back when Abigail Hearns had been the heavy cruiser's assistant T.O., and Abigail had learned a great deal from her. "'including the fact that only rarely did the commander "'need the painfully obvious explained to her in detail. "'I see.' Kaplan nodded acknowledgement and tipped back in her command chair, "'frowning, as she contemplated the current tactical situation "'as seen from the probable mindset of one Captain Jacob Zavala. "'Zavala had originally been the senior officer "'of Destroyer Squadron 301's 2nd Division,' he'd inherited command of the entire squadron from Commodore Ray Chatterjee following the massacre of three-quarters of Desdiv 301.1 at New Tuscany, however, and reorganized the squadron's surviving five ships into two understrength divisions. As part of that reorganization, he'd shifted his flag from HMS Gawain to HMS K and left Gawain in Desdiv 301.2, where her skipper, Captain Frank Morgan, had become the division's new senior officer. At the same time, Kay had been detached from Desdiv 301.2, and along with Kaplan's own Tristram, now constituted a half-strength Desdiv 301.1. They'd been promised enough ships to make up the squadron's losses and bring both divisions back to full strength, but that had been before the Yawata strike. Now it was anyone's guess how long they'd have to wait, or for that matter, if they'd ever see the promised replacements at all. Frankly, kaplan didn't think it was likely they would in the meantime it seemed probable the squadron was going to find itself tasked for independent operations its roland class destroyers were big powerful units and the devastating long-range punch of their mark 16 missiles made them ideal commerce raiders they also made excellent convoy escorts of course but locating convoys in hyper was hellishly difficult and the Talbot Quadrant's member star systems were already well-protected against raiders once a ship dropped back into Endspace. That meant Tristram and her sisters could be dispensed with in the escort role, which left them available for other duties. Given the fact that Manticore's confrontation with the Solarian League was likely to get a lot worse before it got any better, and given the further fact that the Madras Sector's star systems were not well-protected against Manticoran raiders, Whatever Frontier Fleet might fondly imagine, it wasn't hard to figure out how Desron 301 was likely to find itself employed in the painfully near future, hence the current exercise. Why do I have a bad feeling about this? Kaplan asked herself. I mean, there they sit, plodding along at barely 40,000 kilometers per second, slow, fat, dumb, and happy, Sure, they've got a pair of light cruisers to back the destroyers, but that's still no match for a pair of Rollins, damn it! She frowned some more, one dark-skinned hand playing with a lock of bright blonde hair. On the face of it, there wasn't much the putative Solly escorts could do to stop Tristram and Kay from skinning their convoy like a sphinxian prong buck. Kaplan's Mark 16s had over three times the reach of the SLN's javelin-class shipkillers which meant she could destroy all of those merchies without ever even entering their escorts' range. Of course, a Roland carried only 240 Mark 16s, and accuracy would be significantly degraded at maximum range, even against merchant ships. True, the simulation's parameters assumed the raiders were accompanied by a missile transport from which they could resupply, but with the Yawata strike's catastrophic consequences for missile production, no one wanted to waste any of the limited number available so the logical move was to get as close to her prey as she could without ever entering the escort's powered envelope. That would maximize the accuracy and economy of her own fire while maintaining her immunity from the defenders. Which is exactly what I was planning to do. And so far, I haven't seen any reason to change my mind. Not one I could put my finger on anyway, but still... Her eyes narrowed as she finally realized what was bothering her. She didn't know Captain Zavala as well as she wished she did, but he struck her as quite a different proposition from the larger-than-life, almost boisterous Commodore Chatterjee. No one who'd ever served with Chatterjee could have doubted the Commodore's competence, but his enthusiasm and inexhaustible energy had been the first things to strike almost anyone on a first acquaintance, and he'd had a very direct approach to problems. Not only was Zavala barely two-thirds as tall as Chatterjee had been, he was also far quieter, with a thoughtful, almost preoccupied air, which she'd quickly realized was deceptive. Chatterjee had been well-suited to his nickname of Bear, but Zavala was a tree cat, compact, sleek, and with the confident, composed watchfulness of a patient predator." She'd also done a bit of quiet research since he'd assumed command of the squadron and found that Commander Zavala had been a senior tactical instructor at Saginami Island for four years. He'd been slated for command of a destroyer at the time Oscar St. Just had been toppled, but he'd lost that appointment in the Janicek build-down and been sent to the academy instead. In fact, his Saginami Island stint had coincided almost exactly with Edward Janicek's tenure as First Lord of Admiralty and being beached by the Janicek Admiralty was a recommendation in its own right, as far as Kaplan was concerned. From the look of things, he'd done a damned good job as an instructor, though, and the Whitehaven Admiralty had given him command with almost indecent haste. He'd posted a pretty good record as a destroyer skipper since, too. In fact, he'd been jumped straight past Captain, Junior Grade, to Captain of the List, on the basis of his performance with 8th Fleet. Well, that was scarcely surprising. All false modesty aside, Kaplan knew the Navy wasn't choosing Roland skippers at random, and every CO in the squadron had amply demonstrated his or her capabilities before being selected. Yet for this exercise, Zavala had relegated himself to the role of a passenger aboard his flagship. He was only there to observe, he'd explained, and that was the reason Kaplan's mental antennae were quivering. An observer, yes but to observe exactly what, I wonder. She stroked one eyebrow with an index finger, remembering how straightforward the simulation had sounded when she read the initial ops order. In fact, it had gone beyond mere straightforwardness to the absurdly simple, and for the life of her, she couldn't remember the last time a good senior officer had organized a training sim as a gimme. The manticoran tradition was to train its people in exercises which were deliberately harder than actual operations were likely to prove. That obviously wasn't the case here, yet someone like Zavala was unlikely to forget the tradition, which meant there was a nasty hook somewhere inside that tasty-looking bait. But what sort of hook? Abigail, she said. Yes, ma'am. Lieutenant Hearns looked over her shoulder, one eyebrow raised. Do you have those reports on what happened at Torch handy? Such as they are and what we have of them, yes, ma'am. I know we don't have much detail, Kaplan acknowledged, which was unfortunately true. Admiral Luis Rosack and the Erewhonese were keeping any reports of the actual engagement pretty close to their vests. But I'm thinking more about O&I speculations, about the performance of the missiles Mesa equipped those state sec retreads with. We don't have any hard numbers, ma'am. Abigail's own expression turned thoughtful as she paged through her orderly mental files. In fact, there's nothing specific about the mason supplied missiles at all, but one of the analysts on Admiral Hemphill's staff did suggest they may not have been standard solely issue. Is that what you were thinking of, ma'am? That's exactly what I was thinking about, Kaplan nodded. "'Refresh my memory.' "'Well, as you said yourself, it's all speculative, ma'am. But, stripped of all the statistical analysis, his basic point was that we know Erewhon is building new units for Governor Borregos. We also know Erwan has multi-drive missiles of its own. They are still the big, bulky, capacitor-powered model, but they've got plenty of legs, and their warheads and seekers are better than anything the Sollies have.' For that matter, One certainly ought to be able to manufacture the old Mark 13 extended-range missile for smaller launchers, and he suggested Barregos and Rosak would have held out for at least the Mark 13. Whatever they may or may not be telling Old Chicago, they're obviously aware missile ranges have been climbing in our neck of the woods. That being the case, they probably would have insisted on buying the longest-ranged birds they could get. She paused, as if to be sure her CO was with her so far, and Kaplan nodded again. The point he made, the one I'm pretty sure you're thinking about, ma'am, was that given Rosak's reported losses and, assuming he had acquired longer-ranged missiles from the Erewhonese, he must either have fought like a complete and total idiot, which isn't what his resume would lead someone to expect, or else significantly underestimated his enemy's range if he hadn't he never would have entered it in the first place if he did he may have shaved the margin too tightly trying to get in close enough to maximize his hit probabilities exactly kaplan smiled thinly we don't know what the range actually was but i think your analyst was onto something abigail i admit it makes a lot of sense ma'am but we've gotten really good intel on the stollies weaponry since spindle We haven't found any extended-range missiles in any of their magazines. For that matter, there's absolutely no reference to anything of the sort in their attack manuals or the training sims we captured from them. I've been playing with their missile doctrine, offense and defense, ever since we got access, and it's all concerned with really short-range engagements, at least by our standards. And they obviously never saw the range of the Mark 16 or the Mark 23 coming at Spindle. I know. In fact, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if whatever the Masons handed their mercenaries for the attack on Torch was another little toy their good friends and fellow scum at Technodyne whipped up just for them. I'm thinking about those system defense missiles they surprised us with at Monica. Their gazes met, and Kaplan saw the same memory in Abigail's gray-blue eyes. The memory of how those system defense missiles had ravaged Ivar's terrakov's scratch squadron and damned near killed Naomi Kaplan from far beyond the threat range Kaplan herself had projected based on known Solarian missile performance. Those were awfully big missiles, ma'am, Abigail pointed out. She wasn't arguing, Kaplan realized. She was simply thinking out loud. We haven't seen any sign these people have pods on to, and no Sully cruiser or destroyer could launch birds that size without being virtually rebuilt. Even then, they probably couldn't get more than four or five launchers and 40 or 50 missiles aboard something the size of one of their light cruisers. And even completely ignoring the mass and volume penalties of launchers that size, I'd be surprised if one of their tin cans could squeeze in more than Twenty birds that big, on a good day. Agreed. But suppose Technodyne came up with something smaller that still offered a significant range increase over the standard javelin. They wouldn't have to have the kind of legs we ran into at Monica to come as a nasty surprise to someone who thought she knew exactly what kind of range they did have. And somehow, I can't escape the suspicion that Captain Zavala may just have read the same reports and the same O&I speculation you and I read. In which case, I think we might want to consider the possibility that these foolishly overconfident escorts know something we don't about their missiles. I don't have any problem with that, ma'am, Abigail agreed with a smile. Of course, there's the little problem that we don't know just how much of a range extension Captain Zavala might have opted for, Kaplan mused out loud. Several of her other bridge officers were listening in now, and other smiles began to blossom. I think the simplest way for him to go about it would have been to simply double their effective range, she went on. Of course, he may have settled on some other multiplier, just to be difficult, but their accuracy at any sort of extended range is going to be a lot worse than ours, unless he's decided to go ahead and give them Ghost Rider as well. It's always possible he's done exactly that, she reflected to herself. But let's be reasonable here. The idea is to make exercises difficult, not automatically suicidal. Well, unless you're Lady Goldpeak, pinning back Admiral Overstegen's ears at least. She chuckled at the thought, but it was unlikely Zavala would have been quite as nasty as Lady Goldpeak. After all, the Countess and Overstegen had something of a history, according to the rumor mill. Sixteen million kilometers, you think, ma'am? Abigail asked politely, interrupting her thoughts. Let's make it seventeen, Kaplan demurred. It gives us a little more of a fudge factor, and with Ghost Rider, we ought to be able to punch out merchies at that range without wasting too many attack birds. Yes, ma'am. Abigail glanced down at her displays, lips pursed, then looked back up at Kaplan. I'll need five or six minutes to reconfigure my firing plans, ma'am. Well, by my calculations, it's going to take us another three hours to get to 17 million clicks, Kaplan observed dryly. I think we've got time. Used up quite a few missiles there, didn't you, Captain Kaplan? Jacob Zavala inquired testily. They don't grow on trees, you know, especially not now. No, sir, they don't. Naomi Kaplan acknowledged, with a mildness which would have raised warning flags with anyone who knew her well. On the other hand, we did take out every one of the freighters without ever entering the escort's reach. True, but you could have saved at least 20% of your ammo expenditure if you'd closed another five or six million kilometers, and that still would have left you outside even javelin range, Zavala pointed out. Yes, sir, it would have, Kaplan nodded. On the other hand, she continued in the same mild tone, it probably wouldn't have left me outside the range of the missiles you actually gave the Sollies for the exercise. What's that? Zavala cocked his head, blue eyes narrowed as he gazed quizzically at Kaplan. Are you suggesting I cheat, Captain? To quote one of my tack instructors at the Crusher, sir, If you aren't cheating, you're not trying hard enough. Kaplan shrugged. Just as a matter of curiosity, how much of a range boost did you assign? You, Captain Kaplan, have a disrespectful and insulting opinion of my fair-mindedness, Zavala said severely, then snorted. As a matter of fact, they had a nominal effective range of 12 million kilometers, A twenty-five percent jump seemed about right. Really? Kaplan smiled. I figured you'd settle for a nice round number and just double it, sir. Now that, Captain, would have been underhanded, unfair, sneaky, and generally despicable. Which is why I'll probably do exactly that to Captain Morgan's division when it's his turn in the barrel. Zavala waggled a finger in Kaplan's direction. And don't you go warning him, either. Me? Warn him about it? Kaplan laughed. Oh, don't worry about that, sir. As a matter of fact, I've already bet him a bottle of Glenfiddich Grand Reserve that he can't match our score on the sim. I've known Captain Morgan for a while, you know, and somehow I seem to have forgotten to mention to him the range at which we engaged the convoy. I hate to say it, she assumed a mournful expression. But under the circumstances, I strongly suspect he's going to decide that if he closes to just outside the javelin range, he'll be able to punch out all of the merchies with a lot fewer missiles than we expended. She shook her head sadly, and Zavala laughed. A woman after my own underhanded, unfair, sneaky, and generally despicable heart, he observed. I definitely see an admiral's flag in your future. Captain Kaplan. That was
1: David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 6. Join us next time as we continue our journey through this best-selling science fiction novel. Some of you have asked about this. The reader is Alison Johnson, who has done many, many David Weber novels. It's pretty clear she knows the characters very well. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Hank Davis, and our musical composer, Maestro Ruth Judkowitz. Or is that Maestra? No, I think you say it, Maestro. Cryogenically resuscitated barrels of genetically augmented thanks to special guests Charles E. Gannon and David Drake. Please join us next time here at the pounding heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.